The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Today is Thursday, and I'm delighted to welcome my good friend, Dr. Peter Hammond. Um, We've got a real blockbuster of a show today, folks. I'm not sure how Peter is going to tackle this and get it all into one show, but he's going to have a go. It is called The Real Story of the Old Testament. So, Peter, where would you like to start us off with this today? Thank you, Andrew. This was one of my boldest, most ambitious study projects. It was deciding to read through, study through, and summarize, and then preach through every book of the Bible. Now, with the goal of producing books surveying the Old Testament, then the New Testament, and the reason for this was the upcoming Reformation 500 anniversaries. And it's not often you get a 500th anniversary of anything of such magnitude as the Reformation. So when I was actually in Europe on a major speaking tour in 2005, five weeks, 11 countries ministering everywhere from Romania, Poland, Germany, Switzerland, all the way through to Northern Ireland and, and the British Isles and uh, Netherlands and so on. Um, I actually uh, made a point to get to Geneva and to Wittenberg and to Zurich, three of the great Reformation sites. And uh, standing there, I couldn't help but notice uh, dates, being very historically minded, I, I, I pick up dates, and I saw 1509, um, hmm, uh, so we're approaching in just four years the 500th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin. So the idea started to brew in my mind of let's launch a Calvin 500, getting people back to studying some of the key teachings of John Calvin. And so the Calvin 500 and 2009 became a major thing. People came from all over, from as far afield as South Africa, Canada, South Korea, uh, to Geneva for the, the Kelvin 500 in in um, July of 2009. Well, at the same time, I'm starting to think, you know, 1517, the birth of the Reformation, Martin Luther nailing 95 Theses to the church door, the Schlosskirche of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. And of course, he's calling people back to the Bible. How wonderful would it be if we had a Reformation 500, I mean, that, that's a long way ahead at that stage. It was uh, it was a whole 12 years ahead, and uh, that seemed a very long time um, uh, in 2005. But I started speaking to different people, like R.C. Sproul said, you know, we need a Reformation study Bible to coincide with the, with the Reformation 500. And he actually produced that, uh, which was outstanding, Reformation study Bible. He donated over 
2,000 copies to me to distribute throughout Africa as well, which was super appreciated. Those are like gold all over Africa, these Reformation study Bibles for pastors and lecturers and missionaries uh, as far afield as Nigeria and Sudan. So that, that was tremendous. But then the thought began brewing in my mind, it's all very well to speak about sola scriptura, scripture alone is the ultimate authority. But how many people have read the whole Bible? And uh, <laughs> when I was at Baptist Theological Seminary in Cape Town, Dr. Fritz House, who was a veteran of the Africa Corps, uh, who had served in the Second World War, he'd even fought in the Eastern Front. He was, a, he was an outstanding man, uh, a missionary who had spent over 60 years planting Baptist churches all over South Africa. And tremendous, uh, here's the professor of Old Testament. Well, Dr. Fritz House regularly asked us students, how many of you have actually read the book of the Bible, which we are focusing on this semester? You know, which would be Psalms or Ezekiel or Exodus or um, Daniel and uh, not always big books even. And how many of you have read the whole book? And extraordinarily, many students, if not most, had to say they hadn't actually read the whole book yet. <laughs> One said, uh, I did read the commentary and the Fritz House uh, smiled and said, you don't read the cookbook and skip the meal. Read the book. <laughs> and uh, once Dr. Fritz House asked the whole assembled uh, college students of all years at a chapel service, and by the way, those days we would have to be in tie and jacket every day for every lecture, but every day's chapel we'd have to have academic gowns. I suppose something like what Cambridge and Oxford do. I don't know if they still do, but we used to do that at the Baptist Seminary. And uh, so there we are all in academic gowns, ties and jackets, all looking very smart. And I might add, it had to be white shirts. Uh, there was none of this colorful shirts business and black ties. So we were we were quite um, formal. And so he asked, how many of you have read the whole Bible? Well, hands started to be raised. And then somebody asked, you mean the New Testament, sir? And no, Dr. Faust smiled. I mean the whole Bible. Hands came down all over the chapel. Quite a lot of the uh, the pastors in training could say I've read the New Testament, but very few could say they'd read the Old Testament. And that just shows the seriousness of it. And I know that few pastors can articulate the central message or clear distinctives of each book of the Bible. And I know this because for over 40 years of ministry in the streets and the marketplace and the shopping malls across the continent of Africa, I've been involved in personal one-one evangelism, and we've often used surveys as points of contact. And it's clear there's pervasive biblical illiteracy. In fact, I've designed a Bible exam, which we've used frequently. It's, it's a multiple choice, just 128 questions, but multiple choice. How difficult can that be? Well, unbelievably, theological students, even theological lecturers, failed the Bible exam. And it's not that difficult. I mean, we've had people get 100%, normally homeschoolers, <laughs> first time. So uh, it's, it's not undoable. Uh, it's not like there's that many trick questions either. I mean, it's multiple choice, for goodness sakes. Uh, how difficult is that? But uh, I remember we had a Bible college lecturer um, who'd, who'd been lecturing for three years at a local Bible college. He came to apply to, to work at our bookshop here, and uh, I gave him the Bible exam, and he failed it. <laughs> the Bible exam, honestly, that's how bad it can be. So I saw the need to actually survey each book. So the goal was, first of all, read through every book of the Bible, preach through every book of the Bible, summarize each book of the Bible. And at the end, I would have at least 66. In fact, it's more than that because some books like Psalms took several uh, sermons to get through it. I mean, after all, the Psalms are the biggest book in the Bible. There were some books that, that we actually had to uh, do over two, like Proverbs, for example. 
Um, but um, still, most of them I try to sum up in one sermon and then one chapter in the book and produced the Old Testament survey and led the New Testament survey. And so um, to start with, I started to publish these as articles in local Christian magazine. And would you believe the kind of opposition we got? I had people saying, what are you doing the Testament the Old Testament for? What possible relevance is that to us? But the letter kills. It's only the spirit that gives life. Why didn't you start with the New Testament? Why start the Old Testament? And I had to point out that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And I remember somebody arguing with me, and I said, that's not my opinion. I'm quoting the Bible. It's Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And this person said, no, no, the law's got nothing to do with conversion, nothing to do with evangelism. I said, but the law is our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, that we can be justified by faith. No, this person said, no. And this person claimed to be a missionary. I said, that's not my opinion. I'm quoting from Galatians. Uh, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Uh, the, the law of the Lord is a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ, that we can be justified by faith. That's the word of God. And the person still was trying to argue that the law of God has nothing to do with the, with the gospel and uh, the New Testament doesn't need the Old Testament. And, you know, you cannot build a tall building without having deep roots. And when you walk in a forest, it's worthwhile remembering that some of these great big trees have got a mile of roots under them. And the taller the tree, the deeper the roots have to go. And that is the way it is, that you cannot fully understand the New Testament unless you understand the events and characters of the Old Testament and the laws and sacrificial system, the covenants and the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. A great building needs a deep, strong foundation. And when the Bible says in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all scriptures given by God, it's speaking about the Old Testament, because the New Testament wasn't written yet. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's vital that we understand the word of God. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. That's not me saying it. I'm quoting Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge. He who hates correction is stupid. We shouldn't hate correction. And Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. I'm sorry to say it, there's a lot of Christians today who despise knowledge, who despise wisdom, who despise instruction, who despise the study of the Bible itself. And that's very sad. Our Lord Jesus prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so as I was working my way through the Old Testament, there's so many different things that, that hit me. And, uh, you know, if, for example, you just think of how Macron is saying that we've got to put up now with the uh, a lack of abundance and we must uh, give up this idea of, of living in an age of abundance, our economy is going down and so on. Well, it wouldn't be if they were adhering to biblical economics. I mean, just think of basic biblical economics that you get in the Old Testament. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not covet the neighbor's goods. I mean, that's in the Ten Commands. Socialism is legalized theft. Socialism is institutionalized envy. Most of the economic problems we face today would be solved if biblical economics were observed. For example, 1 Samuel 8 says no taxation may be above 10%. Well, imagine if governments weren't allowed to tax above 10%. In fact, 10% is considered too much already. That's oppression. No taxation of property, no taxation of inheritance. It's forbidden by God in the, in the scriptures, 1 Kings 21.3. 
property may not be taxed, and God forbids the taxing of inheritance. After all, the, a good man lays up inheritance for his grandchildren, his children's children, and therefore, uh, considering the man paid tax during his lifetime, why should his inheritance to be given to his children or grandchildren be taxed? Institutions and individuals involved in the full-time service of the Lord may not be taxed. Ezra 7, 23, 24, not even, not the Levites, not the priests, not even the uh, choir, which was full-time serving in the temple, were allowed to be taxed. Why? Well, because they sustained by the free will offerings of God's people, and uh, uh, those people already paid their tax, and now they're giving an offering as unto the Lord. How dare any government tax full-time servants of the Lord? Now, in my country, South Africa, uh, Bibles used to be exempt from tax, uh, they were, and all Christian ministries were immune from tax, and uh, they could not tax, government could not tax Bibles, and governments could not tax full-time servants of the Lord in ministry. Unfortunately, today, our government taxes all of that, which is hideous, and it's forbidden the Bible. The Bible forbids unequal or progressive systems of taxation. The rich should not give more, the poor should not give less, uh, an equal system of taxation. Private ownership of property is entrenched in the Bible, and governments may not tax private property. Uh, unbacked currency is forbidden. Inflationary economics is forbidden. Fractional reserve banking, usury are strictly forbidden in the Bible. And there's so much biblical economics that would solve our problems of today. I mean, just imagine if, if an honest in, an honest effort that you not to uh, have unjust weights and measures, which inflation is. Inflation is a hidden tax. So, if you had governments upholding biblical law, we wouldn't have most of the problems we've got today. So, for example, upholding sanctity of life. If our civil governments were ministers of justice, protecting the innocent and effectively punishing those who don't respect lives and property. Uh, if Imagine if the civil government was to serve its people and be under God, and that violent criminals who are guilty of murder, rape, kidnapping were to be executed as the law of God requires. And uh, the criminals and vandals who show lack of respect for property must make full restitution directly to the victim. So instead of having higher institutes of learning for criminals, which is what prisons have often become today, where they live on the taxes of their victims, imagine if criminals had to pay twice, or in some cases up to three, four, five, even up to seven times, depending on the aggravating circumstances, for what they'd stolen. If the restitution was done directly to the victim, but now the victim stolen from multiple times, and the criminals live on the taxes of the hardworking people. The Bible teaches decentralization, with most responsibilities and powers resting on the local municipal communities, the family, the individual. And, you know, one of the largest apologetics ministries in the world today is Answers in Genesis, which has a most vital strategic ministry, most relevant to our day. And I've, I've been a guest of Ken Ham at the Creation Museum in Ark Encounter. It's magnificent. And in a very real sense, there are answers in every single book of the Bible. Genesis being the foundation is incredibly important, but we shouldn't neglect any book of the Bible. There's answers in Obadiah, there's answers in Micah, there's answers in Isaiah. So those people today advocating statism are eloquently refuted in the scriptures. And the Judaizers of today are thoroughly refuted by the books of Galatians and Hebrews. And the modern cult of Israel worship is refuted by virtually every one of the prophets, every one of the history books of the Old Testament. Every one of the prophets condemned both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah for their idolatry, their immorality, their ingratitude, their iniquities. And God condemned the northern kingdom of Israel into Assyrian exile and the people of Judah into Babylonian captivity. 
So twice God abandoned Jerusalem and the temple to be destroyed in judgment. Yet today we've been told that the political state in the Middle East, which calls itself Israel, despite being secular, pro-abortion, organized of gay pride, LGBTQ marches, and using state funds to promote the LGBTQ agenda, conscripting women into the military, that despite them being unbiblical, all these things, they're worthy of uncritical support by Bible-believing Christians. And many would quote from Galatians, uh, from Hebrew, uh, Genesis 12, now to Abraham and a seed where the promise is made. But you see that whoever blesses Abraham is to be blessed, and whoever curses Abraham is to be cursed. And many people apply that to the state of Israel. But Galatians 3.16 interprets that in these words. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promise made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed, who is Christ. And so plainly, the blessings and curses fall upon us in terms of our relationship with Christ, not our relationship to a political entity. And so today you have many people who have got a real uh, Judaizing cult on the go uh, where they're trying to deify a people which is actually not biblical at all. And so today's Judaizers and Hebrews roots sacred name movements and the Zionists are actually a cult. The first church conference in Jerusalem, Acts 15, rejected the premise of the Judaizers. And the books of Galatians and Philippians and Hebrews expressly reject and condemn these teachings. And so the Zionists, the Judaizers, the Hebrew roots, the sacred name movements are worshipping a false god and proclaiming a false gospel. And it's quite clear from the scripture because every one of the Old Testament prophets condemned the state of Israel. They condemned the Judeans, they condemned the Israelites, they condemned the southern and the northern kingdoms. There's not one of the prophets who gave them a blank check. So, I mean, many of these things would be resolved if we looked at things in context. Today, many messianic prophecies are being misapplied to political entities. Ignoring historical context, ignoring timelines has a disastrous effect, and it wastes many Christians' time in distracting end times hysteria, rapture fever, and escapist eschatology. And I, that's why I've got chronologies and, you know, when, what king reigned, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, uh, what happened when, what the chronology of the Old Testament is, that people can understand where things fit. Because the books of the Bible are organized not in accordance with chronology, but in accordance with first the law, and then the poetry books, and then the history books, and then the prophets, and then the 12 minor prophets. And so uh, the books of the Old Testament, all 39 books, are divided up uh, not in chronology. In fact, even the minor prophets aren't in chronological order. And so sometimes people are talking about today, you know, going back to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple, but that was pre-exilic. That, that was already fulfilled in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. And so if you know the chronology of when books were written and by who and what the context is, many things that are today trumpeted around would suddenly be shown to not actually be accurate. So uh, most of the laws and the statutes and the precepts and instructions of Scripture are being ignored today and replaced by a whole series of new secular humanist laws, like thou shalt not be controversial and thou shalt not be intolerant. I mean, you'd almost think this in the Bible, but it's not. And thou shalt not be homophobic and thou shalt not be a bigot or judgmental. Thou shalt not be a racist. Most serious of all, thou shalt not be anti-Semitic. Well, by the standards of today, every one of the prophets in the Bible were anti-Semitic and so was the Lord because they rebuked all kinds of evils amongst the people who were called Jews. So according to many 
Christians today, we must tolerate pornography and we must tolerate blasphemy as elements of free speech. And we can live with abortion. We can even vote for political parties that legalize baby killing and that use our taxpayers' money to kill babies legally and officially. However, we must treat what the world calls hate speech as unforgivable blasphemy and treason to the New World Order. So this is a real inversion. This is idolatry of the worst order. And adultery is the most condemned sin in the Bible. So today, truly, many in our churches have accepted a false gospel. If you start to read through the Bible, you can't help but get that understanding. Many today have accepted a false gospel and a false concept of man and false laws and false standards and a false version of reality, a false God and a false mission of the church. So no wonder we now tolerate fake pandemics, fake medical authorities, uh, fake elections, fake vaccines, uh, fake presidents, uh, fake governments. It's absolutely vital for all of God's people to return to the whole Bible. And that means all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation to read them, to study them, to believe them, to obey them, to apply the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life. And so um, when I look at what are some of the things that I learned during the three years project of reading through, studying, and preaching through, and summarizing every book of the Old Testament. Well, first of all, everything has consequences. Every promise comes with conditions. Nobody gets a blank check. Nobody gets a free pass from God. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple twice should have made that crystal clear. There is no middle ground. Neutrality is a myth. You're either for God or you're against him. You're either under the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 or under the curses. Deuteronomy 28 lists the blessings of obedience to God's law and the curse of disobedience. And when you read that, it's pretty clear our societies today are living under the curse because our society is in rebellion to God. We reap what we sow. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So what struck me is God is not a permissive God. He did not give us the 10 suggestions. God has provided us with specific guidelines and clear instructions so as how to approach him and how to worship him. Take, for example, the abrupt judgment by fire of the sons of Aaron, the high priest, for introducing strange fire, provides a shocking example of how the holiness of God should lead us to fear God and to obey him. We shouldn't fear man, but we should fear God. God struck the sons of the high priest, Aaron, with fire, struck them dead for introducing strange fire into his tabernacle. Now, we may distinguish between what's right and wrong. However, God clearly distinguishes between what is sinful, what is secular, and what is sacred. So while we might have two right and wrong, God has at least three, sinful, secular, and sacred. Just as there's a process that profanes the holy and makes it common, and that pollutes the common and makes it unclean, so there's a process of redeeming the situation by cleansing the unclean and consecrating the common to make it holy or sanctified, set apart. Leviticus explains the downward process of how something can be profaned and made common and polluted and made unclean. But it also explains the upward process of cleansing the unclean and consecrating the common to make it holy. And of course, the end of sin is death, but the end of uh, consecration and cleansing is holiness and sanctification, eternal life. Now, these people who think the, ch the children of Israel can't do any wrong and they've got to be accepted as people of God. Well, that's condemned in virtually every book in the Old Testament. The people of Israel were roundly condemned for ignorance, for idolatry, 
for infidelity, for immorality, for ingratitude, for injustice, and for interfaith worship. Now, I used alliteration quite a lot to help people to understand and grasp the essence of, of things. It's, it's so much easier to remember. So all starting with eyes. Ignorance, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Idolatry, the most condemned sin in the Bible. Infidelity, immorality, ingratitude. Failure to thank God is a great uh, sin, uh, to have a sense of entitlement, to just take things for granted. Injustice invites the wrath of God. And interfaith worship, God condemns interfaith worship. And if you want to know why the Western nations are in a mess they're in today, well, look no further than these kinds of sins. And the scripture roundly condemns the spiritual adultery of the prophets, the priests, the princes, the profiteers, and the people. And again, uh, five Ps, the alliteration I, I chose to help summarize the people that you see God condemning time and again through his prophets. The false prophets, the priests, the princes, the profiteers, meaning the bankers, the money changers, and the people, condemned again and again in every book of the Old Testament. And the most often condemned in the Bible is idolatry. And we plainly see a lot of idolatry in the world. We even see a lot of idolatry in the church today. Take something else that, that struck me, cremation. Cremation is condemned in the Bible. In Amos 2 verse 1, cremation is plainly condemned. And yet we see all the patriarchs practiced burial. Uh, Joseph, for example, even insisted that his bones be brought back to be buried in the, in the Holy Land when uh, the people came out of Egypt, which was hundreds of years later. Uh, we can see the pains taken by Abraham to bury Sarah and, and uh, for Abraham to be buried. And all the Old Testament prophets and leaders were buried. And Jesus, of course, was buried. And the pagans, like the Greeks and the Romans and the Scandinavians, the Vikings, before their conversion to Christ, they all practiced cremation. And the Hindus practiced cremation, and the Buddhists. And you can just see it's a very pagan practice to, to do cremation. Now, obviously, if you die in a plane crash or eaten by a shark or blown up in a car like that uh, poor girl Doria in that car bomb outside Moscow this last week, um, that does not stop God able to raise you from the dead and resurrect your body, of course. Uh, but there's something about the burial service that is a clear Christian testimony, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection of the body. And so it's always been Christian to bury. And that's why we have an empty tomb in Jerusalem, whereas cremation is plainly condemned and is non-Christian. And people converted from Hinduism and other pagan practices feel very strongly about this, that you cannot do it. It undermines and compromises your Christian testimony. Take something else that's very popular today, body piercing and tattoos. Well, many leaders in the church today claim the Bible says nothing about body piercing and tattoos. I've even seen under um, Got Answers, which is meant to be a Christian uh, question-answer counseling uh, website. And, and they literally just blatantly say, the Bible says nothing about body piercing and tattoos. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of passages, and not just in Leviticus either, uh, that condemn body piercing and tattoos, that that's an abomination in the eyes of God. Take something else that's very popular today, um, age restrictions in church. How often do you hear people saying, the children of today are the church of tomorrow? Well, that's a lot of nonsense. There's no age restriction in church. Um, since when are the children of today not part of the church of today? Uh you know, you might say they're the leaders of tomorrow, but you can't say they're the church of tomorrow because the church of today consists of all ages. And it's quite clear in the Bible that all ages were regularly instructed together for worship and for the reading of the law and even mentions the babies in arms. 
there's no mention of children's church in the Bible. And so this idea of segregating the church according to age in, in the church is something that only came about in the 19th century, uh, sorry, in the 20th century, in the 1900s, and as a direct result of evolution, which believed, again, that different ages lead to different evolutionary situations. So they started to age segregate church worship as a result of social Darwin uh, ideology. Now, notice do not be unequally yoked. There's repeated emphatic prohibitions against mixed race marriages. Ezra and Nehemiah in particular focused intense condemnation on the giving of one's sons and daughters to marry those of other nations and races. Yet today, many claim the scripture is silent on this issue. Well, there's enormous amount of passages that um, I point out in the Old Testament survey that in fact uh, deal with this very thing, condemning the marrying of people of other races, and that this multiculturalism, which has become an idol of the West today. But what should also bother us is the fact that uh, this interracial marriage was listed as the highest priority of the Communist Party in the USA, for example. Communist Party USA put as their first priority right back in 1920s to promote interracial marriage. And I think looking at uh, Barack Hussein Obama, you can see the wisdom of that strategy from the communist perspective. But in the Bible, there's a lot of genealogies, and some people complain about the genealogies, and they like to skip over the genealogies because it seems boring and repetitive and meaningless. But why are there genealogies in the Old and New Testament? Well, because who you marry matters. And the genealogies in the scriptures emphasize the importance of who our ancestors are and who we marry matters for all eternity. We're saved to serve. And it's interesting that even in the book of Revelation, we read that uh, at the Day of Judgment, the people of every race and tribe and nation and language will be there. And, and in heaven, too, not just for the Day of Judgment, for those who are to be condemned. And so interesting that your, your nationality still matters in heaven. And, of course, bear in mind that a nation is not a geographic accident. It's an ethnolinguistic people group. The Hebrews were Hebrews. They didn't become Egyptians. Even after 400 years in Egypt, the Hebrews were still Hebrews. And they didn't become Egyptians. And that should be a bit of a shake up to many people who are trying to say today uh, that, uh, like they speak about the new Swedes or the new Norwegians or uh, things like that. And they're not new Swedes or Norwegians at all. They're, they're Muslims. They're Arabs. They, they are not Swedish or Danish or Canadian or Canadian or anything else like that. Uh, but what you're now getting is the idea that a nation equals a geographic accident as opposed to demographic destiny. And uh, yet the Bible makes it clear that that nation is an ethno-linguistic people group of a shared faith. And that's why when the Lord gave the Great Commission, Matthew 28, he used the word ethni, uh, that uh, you're to make disciples of every ethni of every nation, every ethno-linguistic people group. So who you marry matters. And then not everything that's called to be faith is faith. A lot of it's presumption. And in assuming that Sarah could give her maid Hagar to Abraham to conceive a child that could fulfill God's promise of an heir and make him the father of many nations. This set and train a disastrous series of events because, as the Bible says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death, Proverbs 14, 12. So the presumption of Abraham and Sarah led to the birth of Ishmael, a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. That's an Genesis 16, 12. So to a large extent, the violence and the hostility of the Muslim Arab nations today is an ongoing legacy from that presumption 4,000 years ago. 
the Bible says God loved Jacob, but he hated his brother Esau. That's repeated in the Old and New Testament. Uh, Malachi 1, 2 to 3, um, we read, God loved Jacob but hated Esau. Now Esau showed contempt for the covenant by marrying two Hittite women who were a grief of mind to his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. Esau later married a daughter of Ishmael. And Esau despised his heritage and sold his birthright for a mere plate of food. In Genesis 25, the descendants of Esau, Edom, became the intractable enemies of the people of God. And the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, are condemned in particular by Obadiah for their role in the fall of Jerusalem by joining in the destruction and the looting. And after the exile of the people of Judah to Babylon, the Edomites migrated into the now mostly depopulated Judah, the southern kingdom. And the Edomites came to control Judah to such an extent that the Edomians became the kings of Judah. Herod the Great was an Edomite, meaning an, an uh, Edomian. He became king of Judah in 37 BC. And the age-old enmity, hostility between Esau's descendants and the descendants of Jacob and Isaac, you know, the Saxons, Isaac's sons, it's seen the attempt of King Herod to murder Jesus at his birth in Bethlehem. The hatred of the Jewish high priests, the hatred of the mob in the streets against the Lord Jesus Christ, leading to his betrayal, the mockery of a kangaroo court, the trial, the crucifixion, it reveals and reflects how much the poison of the Edomites had infected and taken over the people of Judah. And so many of the people who were called Jews in the days of Jesus were obviously Edomians, uh, Edomites. And it, it would probably be so uh, today that many who claim to be Jews are actually more of the blood of Edom, of Esau, in other words, uh, than of Christ. And this becomes clear reading through the Minor Prophets, and, and it becomes absolutely clear that, oh, a lot of the people who came back from Babylon were actually uh, Edomians. So uh, take, for example, the prevalence today of talking about Jews as though it reflects all Hebrews and Israelites. That is not um, intelligent, because, for example, what would you think of somebody who comes to the British Isles and refers to a Welshman as English? or a Scotsman as English, or an Irishman as English, they'd probably be corrected. Because the United Kingdom, the British Isles, and uh, consist of four separate people groups in particular, the Welsh, the Scots, the Irish, and English, four separate nations in a United Kingdom. And just as there were 12 tribes in the United Kingdom of Israel, uh, so we, we would be foolish to suggest that everybody in the British Isles is English, or Welsh for that matter. And similarly with the Hebrews, to suggest that Moses was a Jew is nonsense. Moses was a Levite, he was not a Judean. And uh, he, there was no such thing as a Jew in most of the Old Testament. In fact, only after the exile do you start to read about the Judeans being called Jews. And it's not speaking about all the Israelites, because remember, there was after the first three kings, Saul and David and Solomon, there was a division. And you had the United Kingdom broken up, and the Northern Kingdom was called Israel, and the Southern Kingdom called Judah. And after the Babylonian captivity of Judah, you started to read about Jews. And so it's anachronistic to start speaking about Hebrews or Israelites as Jews, or to refer to people of other 12 tribes as Jews. For example, um, now we're going to the New Testament, but uh, of the 12 disciples of Jesus, only one was a Jew, and that was Judas. All the others were Galileans. So time and again, you can see how there's a lot of biblical illiteracy and ignorance 
where people are using words that are just anachronistic. You know, for example, you can't refer to Bodicea, Queen Bodicea, as English, uh, because uh, the concept of English wasn't known then. It was only centuries later that the Angles, out of which Angleland and the English uh, came, and the Jutes and the Saxons came to the British Isles. And so uh, there was no such thing as an Angle or English or Jute or Saxon in Britain uh, in the first century BC when Bodicea was rebelling against the, the Roman occupation. So, you know, you can't speak about Christopher Columbus as an American. There was no such concept as America when uh, Christopher Columbus was out discovering the new world. And so it is that we have a lot of, unfortunately, I would say, anachronism in people's thinking. And you could actually say <clears throat> that it's um, not just anachronism, but biblical illiteracy. Well, as I started preaching my way through and publishing articles in each book of the Old Testament, I had people absolutely outraged. For example, when I showed how every book of the Old Testament preaches Christ. Every book of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all Old Testament messianic prophecies. And the Old Testament must be interpreted Christologically. Our Lord Jesus is the seed of the woman. He is the door to the ark. He is the sacrifice of Isaac. He is Jacob's ladder, the way we get to heaven. He is like Joseph was lifted out of the pit, uh, resurrection. He was the rock from which the water flowed in the wilderness. He is our Passover lamb. He is the bread of life. He is the serpent lifted up on the stake in the wilderness that brought healing. He is our high priest. He is the command of the army of the Lord. He is our kinsman redeemer, the sign of Jonah, the fountain of living waters that brings healing to the nations. And uh, I had people outraged when I applied Messianic prophecies to Christ. And uh, there were people writing into this magazine that was publishing my Bible nutshells saying, no, no, the, the fountain that brings healing to nations is the state of Israel, not not Jesus, and they were upset that I was applying Messianic prophecies to Christ, and they wanted me to apply it to some political state, which legalizes abortion, pornography, gambling, prostitution, and a whole lot of other evils and perversion and LGBTQ. And they somehow wanting to suggest that a political state that uses phosphorus uh, weapons against civilians, which is banned by the Geneva Convention, they are the fountain that brings forth healing to the nations, which I don't know how any stretch of imagination could apply these messianic prophecies to a political entity in the world today. But this is the kind of insanity we see, even in the church, where people are angry when you point out Christ in every book of the Old Testament, because they try and apply that to a political state. And that's sad. Well, God sent his messenger, John, and the Lord himself came into his temple and the Lord cleansed it. And Moses and Elijah point to Christ, and all the prophets point to Christ. Christ has come. He is the son of righteousness who has arisen with healing in his wings. He is the fountain which brings blessings to all the nations of earth. And those who bless Christ will be blessed, and those who curse Christ will be cursed. He is the only hope for mankind. And so now to Abraham and his seed where the promises made, he does not say unto seeds as of many, but of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. So it is quite clear from the Bible that you must interpret the whole Old Testament Christologically, and we must choose this day whom we must serve. The Old Testament ends with a warning of a curse, and the New Testament ends with a promise of God's blessing on all who will trust and obey him. And we are commanded to stand fast in this faith. There's, there's so much in the Old Testament, but I think uh, this is the key thing. We've got to read the Old Testament Christologically, we've got to understand that Christ is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies. Back to you, Andrew.
Thank you, Peter. Um, now, I've got a page that I will be including in the post for our show today. Peter did um, some... Well, I'm going to read it. This, you've got... A, a, it's worth a read through anyway. Um, it's called Surprising Solutions in the Scriptures. But you will see in the very bottom section, uh, Peter writes... So I just went past it. Here we are. Bible study resources. The Old Testament survey, 288 pages with 32 pictures, charts and maps. And New Testament survey, 304 pages with 14 pictures, charts and maps. Along with accompanying Old Testament survey MP3 audio, 29 hours. A New Testament survey MP3 audio, over 25 hours. Along with the Biblical Preaching Handbook are available from Christian Liberty Books. So if you want to delve deeper into this, as I said, uh, the Old Testament is not one book, uh, it's a series of books, and you can write, you, you can read books on those books, you know. I remember the mm. E. Raymond Cat series, there was, uh, I think, Study in Genesis, Study in Revelation, I believe. Uh, he was the, the writer. Um, I'm sure people, people will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but essentially, there's, these resources are available. And so please avail yourself of those and help support FrontlineMissionSA.org. FrontlineMissionSA.org. And as I say, the link to this page will be in the post for this show. But Peter, a question that I've got from my interest if you like and um one of the things that's always interested me is biblical prophecy and of course you talked about the book of revelation but there's actually a great deal of biblical prophecy in the old testament is that right yes indeed in fact you cannot understand the book of revelation without understanding particularly the book of daniel in the old testament and and one could add isaiah uh, because daniel the imagery in Daniel is used over and over in, in Revelation. And so you get this wonderful picture while Daniel is in exile and Jerusalem's been destroyed, the temple's been destroyed, and you can imagine many are just thinking, you know, where's the God of, of the Hebrews? And uh, amazingly, uh, while Jerusalem was burned with fire, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three friends of Daniel, they couldn't be burned with fire. They could be in a fiery furnace, and the Lord was with them and preserved them. And the very sin that led God to judge and condemn Jerusalem and the temple, idolatry, is the very sin that Daniel and his three friends refused to do. They will not eat the food offered to idols. They will not bow before the idol, the, the huge statue set up that everyone must bow to. They uh, and Daniel refuses to pray to the king as is required and refuses to stop praying to the Lord God, Yahweh. And uh, he does it openly, even by his open window, and he's thrown to the lion's den. So you can, and in Daniel, he's given visions. And he's given visions of all the empires of the world. And so you get this, this uh, great statue, which symbolizes all empires of the world, the head of gold, the chest of silver, the stomach of bronze, the legs of bronze and iron, and the feet of iron and clay. And this symbolizes the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, and then the Greek or Macedonian Empire of Alexander the Great, and then the Roman Empire, which is the long legs, which splits into two, east and west, and then the feet, iron and clay. And this, this just symbolized all the empires leading up to when Christ comes, and, and he is the stone which the builders rejected as worthless, which has become the keystone, the capstone, the cornerstone. And he smashes the statue 
at the feet. And the whole statue crumbles to dust and the stone grows to be a mountain that fills the whole earth. This is a picture of the victory of Christ and his kingdom over all the kingdoms of this world. And you get the other visions, you know, when it speaks about the empires more in terms of, of the beasts and animals. Uh, so uh, Daniel really helps one to understand Revelation. And I must say, it's just exhilarating to get the whole picture. Because so often what we're doing is getting bits and pieces. And we're getting a little um, isolated view here. And, and it's like when you're doing gold mining. You can pan for gold and pick up some gold nuggets and gold dust in the rivers. But to get the reefs of gold, you've got to dig deep into the earth. And, of course, Johannesburg and other parts of South Africa were built on gold where they went miles down into the earth and found these great reefs of gold. And Kimberley, that's how they got the big hole, uh, digging for diamonds, going all the way down there. Um, uh, massive, massive, massive excavation work, uh, removing millions of tons of, of um, uh, earth in order to get to that gold. And it's the same with Bible study. Uh, of course, you can just skip through and read a promise box and pick up a verse in here, and you will get gold dust. But if you want the reefs of gold, you've got to dig. <laughs> and uh, um, I find digging through the whole Bible has been absolutely one of the most rewarding experiences. And what makes uh, one of the things it does, it, it makes it easy to spot heresy and false teaching and shallow, superficial teaching that's so common today when you have read the whole Bible. I mean, even if you just read through the whole Bible, just just read it. It's 1,187 chapters. So if you read one chapter a day, it'll, which is, they're not long chapters, it'll get you through the whole Bible in four years. But if you read four chapters a day, which wouldn't take you more than 15 minutes, you could get through the whole Bible in a year. And so I, I strongly advise all of our listeners uh, to get back into the Bible and, and read every book of the Bible. And if you find it a little hard, well, hopefully you'd find a, a book like Old Testament Survey or the sermons I've got on our website, um, the Bible survey books and every book of the Bible. I mean, you can go onto our sermon audio page and just type in Genesis and you'll get my one sermon summary of Genesis and, and Exodus and Leviticus and so on. And so maybe that would just help one work one's way through some of the less familiar books and help put it into chronological uh, um, position and, and understand where they fit in. And uh, I, I guarantee that anyone who surveys the whole Bible will find themselves well able to answer all the nonsense of the world today because once you know the the gold standard, uh, you can recognise the fake immediately. Back to Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And it's interesting you brought up the book of Daniel because um, in my mind I had the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel. But the reason it's interesting to me is Tex Mars, who I'm sure you will be familiar with, who was a, a great Christian, and he was my first publisher. In fact, without Tex Mars, I don't think the Synagogue of Satan would have had the reach that it did, but he was an extremely good publisher. And um, he, uh, you know, kind of, not just with my book, with so many books that he put together, had a, a great following. And ever since he published The Synagogue of Satan, whenever he released a new book, he would send me a copy and he mm. would sign it to me. And at the bottom, after he signed it, he'd write Daniel 12.10. And I'll just read that for you, folks, and then we'll get Peter's comments on it. This is the King James Version of Daniel 12.10. Many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Peter, what is your interpretation of that verse? Oh, it's 
it's just magnificent and it's so true we are living in a world where people are rushing to and fro where we're living in a world where knowledge is abounding uh, we're living in a world where deception is abounding and living in a world of idolatry and that those who turn many uh, to god will shine like the stars of the sky and and uh, um, and that that is truly that's wisdom the fear of the lord's beginning of wisdom so daniel is a magnificent example of excellence and uh, his stand against idolatry and showing us how to serve even in wicked governments without compromise. Uh, he, he plainly was a man of such integrity and such courage. I mean, to be thrown at the lion's den, uh, if people haven't seen a lion in the wild, then they they don't really appreciate just how daunting that could be um, uh, because the lion is incredible. And I've, I've been in the wild where there's nothing between me and the lion except air. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's no bars, there's no barriers, um, not in a car or anything like this, but out on my ground, on the ground. And that line has the ability to break every bone in my body. And they have immense power in there. And to to recognize um, how Daniel could be in the lion's den and yet be completely protected. I, I look at that and think, I bet some angels came to these lions and said, Daniel's one of ours. Um, be patient. You'll get a good meal in the morning. And... Um, <laughs> Daniel could probably sleep that night, uh, probably resting uh, against these magnificent uh, lions' manes because um, these lions recognized the lion, uh, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the creator, and God even cares for the lions. And these lions were abused and starved so that they would be particularly vicious to anyone who's thrown into their den. But Daniel was not harmed. But when the tattletales, the rats who had um, been spreading these lies and attacks against Daniel. When they were thrown to the lion's den the next day, they were smashed to pieces. We hear that every bone in their bodies were broken uh, by the lions. And uh, it, it, it should remind us, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. God protects his own. And uh, uh, God's servants, God's responsibility. Daniel, the book has got so much to teach us, and it's so relevant to this day. And I, I think reading Daniel, and as you said, Ezekiel too, uh, very, very helpful to understanding what we're facing today. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And indeed, we hear about the Lion of Judah. And of course, um, that is on the British Code of Arms. What can you tell us about that in our remaining time, Peter? I've got no doubt that the Saxon people, the people of, of uh, Northwestern Europe are the true Israel of God. I've got no doubt that uh, the British royal family uh, is descended from David's line. Uh, as um, the Bible says, that uh, David will never lack an heir at sitting on the throne. Um, and um, as was said to by Queen Victoria, Queen Victoria, who, who actually um, uh, sponsored a full investigation into the genealogy, and, and that's published in the book Chron uh, Coronation, which is a big coffee table, magnificent book on coronation through, and it's got the lineage going all the way back to King David. Um, I, I, I don't doubt that uh, what we are seeing uh, with the covenant people of God, uh, the Saxons or the um, sons of uh, Isaac's sons, um, are uh, the real Israel of God. And uh, you can see also the, the prophecies in the Old Testament that uh, um, the, the descendants of Abraham would be called great and there would be a company of nations and there would be a blessing to all the families and nations of the earth. And that has been fulfilled by the Protestant faith 
the Reformation that's gone forth from the British Isles, the great missionary movement. And I've documented that in the great century of missions and other books like this showing that no country has blessed uh, the people of the world as the British and uh, other Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, Scandinavian people have done through the missions, through the uh, great Reformation works and uh, tragic that God's people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Most don't even know their identity. So it's it's vital that we understand our identity and where we come. And yes, just look at the crest, look at the royal family, and you see the harp of David, you see the lion of Judah, you see all the British uh, uh, coronation symbols. There are Old Testament symbols, even the whole coronation process um, carried out for, for example, Queen Victoria and, and the, the kings and queens before her. It comes straight from the Bible. It's exactly the way how coronations were carried out in the Bible from the anointing with oil and all the rest, right down to the stone of scone, Jacob's uh, stone, uh, Jacob's pillow um, uh, being under the the, uh, throne. So there's there's so much uh, that we can learn from our heritage. And, And of course, this is why God has used the British Isles so much. But, you know, remember, to whom much is given, much is required. And uh, too much more is given, much more is required. And there's no salvation by race. Salvation is by the grace of God alone, by the blood of Christ alone, by his atonement. Uh, But the thing is, our heritage should remind us of our duty and our calling. And and it's a terrible thing that uh, what what, uh, the British peoples are guilty of is not just idolatry, but backsliding and turning away from from our our God and our calling and uh, how many people have suffered as a result. So it's it's a serious thing. It's not something to lead to pride when one realizes one's lineage, but it should lead to great sense of awe and responsibility and grief that in recent generations that has been abandoned and that you can see a country that was once so godly and so much a blessing to the nations has become so secular, superficial. In fact, the very things that the prophets condemned can be said to be what's going on right now in the British Isles. We we are seeing the immorality, we're seeing the idolatry, the ignorance, the infidelity, the ingratitude, the injustice, and the interfaith. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And you referred to Hosea 4, 6, chapter 4, verse 6 there. And that is actually um, the very last quote I included in my book, in the name of Yahweh. Very important to me, very important verse. And I'm going to close out with this. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Peter, any comments on that? And then please uh, give the audience details of your website and how they can contact you. Yes, it's so important. The Bible contains the mind of God and the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. It is sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the ultimate authority. We need to get back to the Bible for reformation and revival. So if folks are interested in my sermons, preaching through every book of the Bible, they can get either in written form uh, or uh, audio form on the livingstonfellowship.co.za website, livingstonfellowship.co.za, which is uh, where I put most Bible studies and sermons that I've done. And the book, Old Testament Survey, which is now available as an ebook um, through Smashwords, so that people can go to our Christian Liberty books.co.za website, find the Old Testament Survey and the New Testament Survey, and get the books, uh, including as, as ebooks now. And of course, if anyone wants to get hold of me, it's peter at frontline.org.za, or ZA as Americans say. So peter at frontline.org.za. 
Z-A is my email and our main website, Frontline Mission SA Tarot. Thank you so much, Andrew. And God bless you for asking for this subject. I think this is uh, very timely. There's nothing more strategic and foundational than getting back to understand what God's words actually teach you. Thank you, Peter. And um, uh, we always tend to reference Peter's Frontline Fellowship website, and I do as well on the traditional Christian message that Peter writes. Um, because there are a few websites and people don't remember everything. But if you go to any of the posts for the shows that Peter and I have done together, I'll give you the websites. Peter mentioned a couple of them there. Of course, we've got Frontline Fellowship at the top. Then we've got the Reformation Society. We've got Henry Morton Stanley School of Christian Journalism. We've got the Livingstone Fellowship and the Christian Liberty books that Peter mentioned. And also the Christian Action website so all these six links are in our show posts under the links to peter's websites uh heading above that is the dr peter hammond archive of all the shows we've done together so you can go there and listen to shows that i no longer carry on my website as they drop off after 28 days as you know and then above that we have got the surprising solutions in the scriptures today which will give you further information on what peter is talking about and please send emails of support for peter's work to peter at frontline.org.za so that being said i want to thank peter so much for joining me today on a show entitled the real story of the old testament peter and i'll be back with you at the same time next week i'll of course be back with you all tomorrow and until then folks thank you for listening have a wonderful day and bye for now